Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana in John 2, verses 1 to 11. We talk about the improvisational nature of Jesus' first miraculous sign, which he does at the urging of his mother, even though it's not yet his time. And we wonder whether we, too, might be improvisational when it comes to fulfilling our own callings. We ponder the subtlety of Jesus' first miracle, which almost no one seems to notice, and which the bridegroom ultimately gets credit for. And we wonder what else God might be up to in the world today that nobody seems to notice. And we talk about abundant wine as a sign of the arrival of the Messianic Age, and imagine the hospitality of God's coming kingdom, which has plenty of merriment to go around. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing good. How are you, Bobby? I am good also. Good. <laughs> I, had a, I had a dream last night that our conversations were not just audio, but there was also like a video component to it. Oh, that would be amazing. It would not be, at least not the way it played out in my dream, because I was like recording it from bed, which I do not record. I record these podcasts from many different places, but not from bed. Yeah. But I really looked a hot mess in the dream video Bible worm episode. Well, you look very professional right now. Oh, good. That's great. Because yeah. you're at work though, right? <laughs> I'm at work. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm at work. Mm-hmm. I will say that, do you remember this? When we first started Bible Worm, we had sort of imagined that maybe we would post videos of our conversations. And so we were actually trying to like, I don't even know what we were trying to do. To look like something? Trying to look like we were not ridiculous. (laughs) No, trying to look like we, yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm glad we didn't do that. It turns out that editing video is complicated (laughs) in a way that editing audio is not complicated because, I mean, because it has to line up, you know, like, yeah, yeah. You can't just cut something out and then like, you're like looking all oh my weird. God. That would be so stressful to me yeah. if this were, if there were videos involved in this. Yeah. I'm glad there are not. I don't know that anybody really wants to watch a video of. I don't know why they would talking. want to do that. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So well, anyway. maybe someday we'll do that. We'll just do it for kicks and just see. It'll go out to our Patreon supporters at the, you know, like a thousand dollars a month level. <laughs> Oh, no, you just reminded me that I said I was going to wear my wedding dress today for our reading. And oh, I forgot no. I'm not wearing my wedding dress. Should we uh, should we get back on the call later? I guess so. OK, see you, <laughs> see you next time. So today we're talking about the wedding at Cana, which is why a wedding dress would have been appropriate. So appropriate. There would oh, be nothing awkward. bizarre about me wearing a wedding dress to work. Yeah. To um, talk about Everybody would be like, Amy, she's totally fine. <laughs> she's totally fine. No right? All the people in the synagogue. Why? Oh, because I was reading about the wedding in the New Testament. Just tell all my congregants. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't get any great. better when you explain it. It doesn't it, get does any it? better. No. no. I just got married in like a, in a gray suit. And I still have that suit. I could go put that suit on. But it would just be me wearing a gray suit. 
instead of the daddy shark like the idea t-shirt Bob. that I currently have on. He is wearing a daddy shark t-shirt. Do 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 do. Yeah. It's laundry day. You can tell when <laughs> you can tell when laundry day comes around by the ridiculous things I end up wearing. I will say, not that you ask or that anyone cares. <laughs> when I wear my daddy shark out in public, people comment on it almost every time. I was going to say I don't think daddy shark is like laundry day level of well, it's interesting because some like half the people are like, whoa, I love that shirt. Where did you get it? And half the people are like, dude, <laughs> you should not be in public in a daddy shark T-shirt. People say that to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like, I'm sorry That's for you, man. Not I hate okay. that song. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think daddy shark, the song, maybe more than the like concept. Yeah. People have very strong opinions have about strong it. Strong feelings about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have some T-shirts from uh, candidates for presidential elections who did not win those elections. <laughs> That's awesome. But who I was supporting. Ooh, like who? And so Ralph I have Nader. to- I, this is not a political podcast, Bobby. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Ralph Nader. But so I have to be very, um, sometimes I sort of accidentally wear one in a space where like, that's- that will draw negative attention. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to, to, to wear it if your candidate wins, but I don't know how it feels. Anyway, I just have to be aware of what I'm doing. Doesn't mean I won't wear it. It just, yeah. I, I just, when I put it on, I think about, <laughs> think about where I'll be that day. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think it takes a certain amount of commitment to, to candidate, to wear a shirt of a losing candidate like that. I, I, yeah. Like after the fact, keep wearing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, well. That's laundry day. (laughs) (laughs) So neither one of us is wearing wedding attire, but we are in the second chapter of the Gospel of John in which we get the story of Jesus and his mother at a wedding in Cana. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are just in the next verse from where we were last time. Anything that we need that has come up <laughs> that we need to clarify about. What I we have doing. nothing to add to where we were last time. Okay. All right. Well then let's just jump on in. I am in chapter two of the gospel of John, starting with verse one and I'm reading in the common English translation. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they don't have any wine. Jesus replied, woman. <laughs> I don't know how to intone this. <laughs> no, I don't know how to intone this either. You could make it like real, like woman, or, you know, like woman. <laughs> and I don't know how, like, I feel like whichever way you do it, you're making some interpretive You're moves. making an interpretive decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going <laughs> to. Woman. Woman. What does that have to do with me? <laughs> Robot Jesus. Who has no emotions behind what he says here. I like that. Jesus replied, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. His mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay. It's not entirely clear where to transition in this text, but we're going to stop right there and and transition the scene. Yeah. All right. So we're at a wedding. We're in Cana of Galilee. Any thoughts about, does Cana matter at all? I mean, I know it matters. Like, it's a place. Every, every place matters. Every place matters. I mean, I will say what, what drew my attention first was just, you know, there, he's still in Galilee. It told us yeah. yesterday that he went up to Galilee. 
And I love the timestamp on it, like on the third day. So like if you count backwards on the first day, John the Baptist points yeah. out Jesus to some disciples and two of them sort of go and follow. And then on the second day, Jesus goes to Galilee and winds up with two other disciples. And on the third day, they go to a wedding. <laughs> yeah, I think that third day is important. I actually read it a little differently. So I'm curious what you think. Uh, in verse 19, back in chapter one, we get the Jewish leaders show up. Yeah. And then in verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming to him. And uh-huh. then in verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And then in verse 43, the next day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. So we're, so we've had four days in chapter one. And then we get the third day, I think, maybe means the third day after that fourth day, which would make it the seventh day. Oh, yeah, that could. Oh, we do like sevens. We love sevens. We also like threes. Christians especially do, like, yeah, three, yeah, like threes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. to have a three and a seven in there would be very satisfying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is interesting about John is like he's lingering in this first, like we're in chapter two of the of the gospel and we're still in the first week of the, however you count it, we're still yeah, in the first yeah. week of things. So it's been very, very slow. You know, if we were in the gospel of Mark by now, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be like halfway to Jesus's ministry, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Okay, wait, tease out for me some more the seventh day. Well, I don't Can quite... you? I mean, we don't know what day we started on. Yeah. And a wedding wouldn't be on Shabbat, but... Presumably, no. Will you tease out the this, the resonance for the seventh day for this early Christian community as you're seeing it? Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting because it's not... I think you're exactly right. It's not the seventh day, you know, yeah. like we're on the Sabbath day. But I do think that it's significant that we have a seven-day period of which this is the seventh day. Which, of course, puts you back in the mindset of, you know, say, creation and the completion of things. And so I don't quite know. Like, I mean, one way to put it together is this is the seventh day is the completion of this sort of introductory movement of the gospel. You could think of it as here we're expecting some sort of fulfillment of some things like this. You know, this is going to be Jesus's first sign that he gives. uh, Spoiler alert. Mm Mm-hmm. So you could read it that way, or you could, I mean, I think you could probably read it in a, like a majorly spiritual sense of like, up until now, we've been anticipating the Messiah. Now it's the seventh day and that anticipation is going to come to com- to the completion in this, in this sign. I don't know. I just don't know. As with many things with John. Right. Yeah. That's, I don't know how that's far to read totally, it. Totally. That's, that's John, right? He'll yeah. open the door a little bit and then open a lot of doors and just see what you want to go into. I love thinking about the seventh day in relationship to creation. Not like, you know, as we said, like it's not, they're not saying this is happening on the Sabbath. But if you think about that, the seventh day of creation and the relationship of the seventh day to all the other days, I mean, you even could think of like the, the, the Sabbath as a sign. I don't know. It's just something something that is related to what has been happening is happening right yeah. like the seventh day is part of the the mm-hmm. first the creation period but it also is fundamentally different yeah in some way you know yeah it's That's also interesting, interesting because john does not say on the seventh day there was a wedding That's he right. says on the third day and so you have That's to have right. been actually paying some attention yeah and especially if you were imagining this as an oral, you know, an originally an oral audience would have had to be like, okay, we're on day. Let's see. We've right. had one, two, three, four, three more, four plus three. Like, 
It takes you a little work to get to seven. John doesn't mind making us work. No, (laughs) he does not. John doesn't mind that. So, okay. So let's talk about the third day then. Yeah. I mean, when, so I will say when I read the third day, just with my, you know, Jewish perspective, it didn't mean a whole heck of a lot to me, but it would mean more, I think, in a Christian context. Yeah. I mean, at least in the Christian context that I move in, you know, when you hear the third day in the Apostles' Creed, which many churches say, on the third day, he arose again from the dead. Mm. And so that language of like third day just kind of clicks in your head. Whether John has that in mind or not, yeah, I, I don't know. Not so clear. Yeah, because he wasn't reciting the Apostles' Creed, probably. He wasn't, and he actually doesn't use the language of third day anywhere else mm. in his gospel. You know, mm-hmm. there, it's implied in the resurrection narrative like he's jesus is crucified on a friday and resurrected on sunday so it's the third day but he doesn't actually use that john doesn't actually use that language yeah so i know there's a whole line of interpretation among christians that think okay third day like now we're in the we're in resurrection let's read this story through the story of crucifixion resurrection that part i actually think john i actually think john is trying to get us to read the resurrection in light of this as we'll see but i'm not sure third day is actually part of that yeah I don't know. Yeah. So interesting. But you started out asking me about Cana. About Cana. (laughs) So, and I just like totally diverted because I was like, I don't have any thoughts about Cana. Do you have thoughts about Cana? Cana is very uninteresting. (laughs) Oh, great. Okay, good. It was a trick question. It was a trick question. I don't, yeah. I mean, to me, it's interesting that it's in Galilee. Uh, We're sort of, you know, we're we're near, we're near ish to Nazareth where Jesus is said to be from. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not near the lake uh, of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee right now. And so, but uh, we don't know about Cana. I think it appears again later in John. I can't huh. remember in what context, but otherwise we don't know anything about it. I do think, as you were saying, that it's interesting that we're in Galilee. In the synoptic gospels, as you might've noticed, Jesus does the early part of his life in Galilee and then just kind of goes to Jerusalem at the very end. So like last year in the Gospel of Luke, there was that verse in chapter 9 where Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He was in Galilee before that. He went to Jerusalem after that and sort of won a one-way journey. Mm -hmm. In John's Gospel, Jesus goes back and forth. Oh, that's interesting. mm -hmm, Yeah, it's really quite different. And John's Gospel seems to take place over a period of at least three years. We get three different Passovers narrated where the synoptics only mention one. And so maybe there's a a one-year journey to Jerusalem in the synoptics and a three-year kind of back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. People in Galilee tend to be more receptive of Jesus, both in the synoptics and in John, than people in Jerusalem for reasons that we have talked about before and can talk about again. And we'll talk about again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're at a wedding, which I just, I don't know. Like, somehow the, the wedding is surprising to me in the context of the narrative. Cause I guess we just haven't really seen weddings. Yeah. Any thoughts about the setting of this story being at a wedding? I think as a, as a modern person, it, it feels really funny. Like, like all of a sudden, I don't know, you picture like the movie wedding crashers. I mean, I know it's just invited <laughs> to the wedding, but like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm like thinking about the reception and I, I don't know. I will say at, at least in 
Jewish tradition as I know it, which I think goes back pretty far, like the there is an imperative, there is a commandment to rejoice with the bride and the groom on their wedding day. Yeah. And like the idea that, you know, there are, I'll just say here, there are all sorts of like, I feel very aware that I'm using heteronormative language and that's that's just sort of the way it was passed through tradition, but there certainly are updated conversations happening yeah. in the Jewish community about about all of that. And but just just put a little pin in that. Like really the the union between two adults who are going to form a household together was so critical to the functioning, it was just understood to be so yeah. critical to the functioning of society. That even though, you know, once you've been to 10 weddings, they get kind of old and, you don't, <laughs> you know, like maybe you don't really want to go to another wedding. Yeah. It, it kind of was a religious obligation to go. Interesting. And, and celebrate with people so that they, you know, re- would feel joy on that day. So I agree, like reading it as a modern person, I'm like, a wedding? Yeah. <laughs> like picturing it, you know hotel ballroom and a DJ, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm trying to dig into that requirement the fact to that be Jesus joyful. and his mother are both invited makes a lot of interpreters think that this is probably a family affair. Mm. You know, somebody in Jesus's family was getting married, although, I mean, it's not necessarily obvious. What's interesting to me is Jesus's disciples are there and he just met those guys like literally (laughs) three days ago. Yeah. I guess you just invite your friends. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I almost was surprised. I don't know why exactly to see the specification that Jesus and his disciples had been invited. I guess I just sort of imagined these sort of you know, small, tightly knit communities where like someone's getting married. Yeah. It's not like you don't get specific invitations. People just, the community goes to the wedding because oh, yeah. that's what you do. But, but you're right. Like there is, it is specified here that Jesus is invited to the wedding. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that there's too much to make out of that. I just, the disciples yeah. in particular are, are at a wedding that I'm not sure that they, I mean, maybe they're all kind of from, from a rent. No, they're from Bethany anyway. They get to hang with Jesus wherever. They're all there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you Mm -hmm. you know, we've seen in the first chapter of John this repeated come and see. And so we've kind of been like, if they're not there, (laughs) they don't get to. They're not going to see. Uh, They don't get to see. Yeah. So it's important. All right. Yeah. So the wine runs out. And Jesus's mother, who, by the way, is not called Mary in the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. I I don't know that that is significant, but she's a little depersonalized. Yeah. From Matthew and Luke. What do you think is the significance of the setting of the story being a lack of wine at this wedding? I mean, I, I tie that to what I was just talking about, this sort of imperative to rejoice. And, you know, in, in traditional weddings in a lot of cultures, but certainly in in Jewish culture, a traditional wedding is gets pretty like, raucous on the dancing front. Like there's a lot of wild dancing that goes late into the night. And, and that kind of stuff is just sort of facilitated by having wine, you know, (laughs) I mean, there, there is something, you know, sacred about wine too, but they're not talking about wine for the purpose of like, you know, blessings and whatnot. Cause it says the wines run out. It doesn't, well, actually it says they have no wine. It doesn't say it's run out. 
it must have run out. They couldn't have a wedding with no wine. No, they had. Yeah, it means that ran out. Yeah, because later on, uh, it turned. Yeah, they've run out of wine. Yeah. Because it's interesting because later on in the part we haven't gotten to yet in verse 10, the steward, the head waiter is going to say. Oh, that's people, right. That's most right. people save the good wine or that's have right. the good wine first and the bad wine at the end. Yeah. When people have been drinking freely, which seems to imply the expectation that people have drunk enough that they're going to no longer notice the difference between good and bad wine. So. Yeah. Yeah. There is an implication of some raucousness. Yeah. I think here. Yeah. I find the way that Jesus's mother brings up the issue so just sort of open-ended. Like, yeah. you know, my translation is they have no wine. Yeah. Yours was slightly different, but same. Yeah, they don't have any wine. Same, mm-hmm. same idea, right. So it's not totally clear to me up front, like, is there an ask in here? Yeah. You know, does Jesus's mother know that Jesus can solve this problem? Yeah. Or is it like, you're telling your adult son that like something unfortunate has happened. Yeah. You know, like it it could have like a complaining tone to it. It could have a, I I don't know. Like, I I don't know. How how do you read the tone of that part? Yeah. Cause I think, I think that's a great question. Cause she does, she doesn't make a direct ask. I think that's, I think that's really important. In verse five, She's then going to say, do whatever he tells you, which seems to suggest she's expecting him to do something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I guess yeah. in light of those That's two verses true. together, I read it as her commenting on the situation with an expectation that he ought to be able to do something about it. Even though she hasn't asked him, like, mm-hmm. she does not say, like, you need to fix this problem, Jesus. Right. Now, whether she, I mean, we just don't know. Like, does she know what Jesus is capable of doing? We, I mean, we just have, we have no information about her. Does she, does she know Does she think he's going to run to the corner store and like buy a box of wine? Like, I, Yeah. Like, I yeah. don't, I mean, she clearly holds him in esteem yeah. because she thinks that what, however he responds to this situation will be the right thing and other people should do whatever he says to do. But yeah, I mean, we just have, I have no idea reading this, whether he, whether she has any real sense that Jesus is not like your typical 30 something. Yeah. My own kind of gut about it is that she does. And so there's a sort of private understanding about who Jesus is, but it is not yet public. Yeah. But that's kind of implied or inferred, I guess, from that, from what Jesus says in response, my time hasn't come yet. Yeah. Which to me suggests that they both have a knowledge that's going to be revealed, but now is not the time. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus definitely understands what his mother said as expecting him to do something about it. And I just find that, I don't know. I find their interaction kind of funny. Maybe like I was actually trying to think like, okay, how old is Jesus here? Cause it seems so like, it's, it seems like a conversation I would have with my teenager. Like, yeah. you know, there is, here's the problem that's happening. And like, what do you expect me to do about that? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah his response there, woman, what does that have to do with me? Mm-hmm. I was having trouble intoning that when I was yeah. reading it earlier. How, how, like, how do you re- read his response there? It's so, it's so hard. I mean, 
woman, starting a sentence with woman in English is like, that's just kind of unacceptable. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I don't know how it would sound in Greek. And, you know, my, my study Bible says that it is used before other revelations to women in the gospel. Yeah. So maybe it doesn't have a harshness to it, but it is certainly impersonal. Yeah. Like, he doesn't say mother, yeah. you know? I love that, Amy. I think that's exactly right. I, I don't think there's a harshness in the way that we hear a harshness. Yeah. But I do think that what you're saying about impersonal, breaking a little bit the familial connection, I think is yeah. right. He addresses her in the way that he addresses other women in the Gospel of John who are not his mother. Yeah. Which is not rude, but it's also not warm. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that's always hard for me in reading the Gospels that we've read so far anyway, is the, and I think I'm sort of coming around to understand why it's important in the context of this story. But, you know, reading this, I I just this week was reading the part of the Joseph story at the end of Genesis, where Joseph is already this, you know, the number two guy in Egypt who's saving anyone, saving everyone from the famine and like very powerful obviously a different kind of powerful than yeah. what we're talking about with Jesus. But when he finally is, is reunited with his father, his father goes where he's going in Egypt and Joseph goes to him. And it just is such a like, though Joseph is the person who holds all the power, all the worldly power, he honors his father because his father is his father. And there mm-hmm. is a commandment to honor your parents. And that's yeah. what that looks like. And so every time I see Jesus have to sort of push back against the, the earthly parents, you know, yeah. either in his situation or in encouraging his followers to not feel beholden to past generations because they're being asked to do something new. Oh, it just, it's a real tension point for me. I get it sort of, but. Yeah. yeah and in the synoptics, like in Luke last year, we saw that line where, Jesus says, who are my mother and brother and sisters? Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Or else in chapter 10 of Luke, I think he says, whoever does not hate their mother and father has no place in my kingdom or whatever that line is. And I think it's in 1046. Like there's some pretty harsh language. That's really strong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here it's not quite so strong, but I think it's in the same ballpark. Like it's, this is John's version of that. What does that have to do with me? Sort of saying like, ah, like maybe this is a family wedding. Maybe you're my mom, <laughs> but like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I don't know. But then interestingly, it turns out he's going to do it anyway. So like yep. he, he does, he does honor his mother's implied wishes, but by way of sort of saying like, I'm not doing this because you asked me to or something maybe. Yeah. 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 That's what made it seem so much like a, parent teen interaction to me it's like the (laughs) question it's very like passive aggressive like the question's not quite asked the response is what does that have to do with me and then without any further conversation they just do what it was that wasn't asked but was actually desired (laughs) although she comes back in verse five which i love and just tells the servants do what he tells you like he has just sort of said i'm not gonna do anything mom Mm -hmm. woman and then she says do whatever he says like she she knows or like she is exerting pressure. I don't quite know, but maybe, or I, I, I could definitely see it being that way. Or I could see it being like, I'm stepping back. 
Like whatever mm. you say. Mm. I don't know. But yeah, I guess it suggests that he's going to tell them to do something. I think she is very clearly suggesting that she thinks he ought to do something. And yeah. w- whether she thinks he will do something or not, maybe is a little bit left open, but that's sort of like, and publicly saying uh, to Jesus in a way that, you know, like he's been sort of put on the spot in front of yeah. some people. We don't know exactly who, but yeah, seems like he's got a little bit of a reputation or something now, now to uphold. Any thoughts about, so one of the ways that I read this text is, you know, we talked about running out of wine is about not being able to celebrate properly, which I, which I think is right. I also read this in a little bit of an honor-shame context. Mm. And I don't know what you think about that, where it would be shameful to be the host of the wedding that ran out of wine. Mm-hmm. And so this, like, we got to do something. Could be about we need people to keep celebrating, but it could also be we don't want this guy, whoever he is, who's hosting this party, we don't want his reputation to suffer. Do you make anything of that? Like, would you go there with me or no? Well, no, I could see it. It's interesting. When you were first talking, I was thinking honor shame, like their honor shame, going back to the suggestion that maybe this is a family wedding. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which uh, yeah, hadn't yeah. been my that initial be starting mm-hmm. place, but yeah. but could be. Yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know if quite honor shame. I mean, maybe honor shame or maybe just like helping people avoid embarrassment. Like it does. Yeah. Yeah, I could. I certainly, I wouldn't want to be the host of a party that ran out of bagels. You know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But it still seems like a, a generous thing to do if you're helping someone else avoid embarrassment. Yeah. You know? Let's hang on to that a little bit. I, I just think that the motivations here of both Jesus and his mother are kind of interesting. And what, what, what are they, like, where do they yeah. engage social expectations? Where do they engage religious expectations, messianic expectations? Yeah. Yeah. So the reason that Jesus gives for not, maybe not responding to his mother's command is my time is the CEB hasn't come yet. What is it in the NRSV? The NRSV is my hour has not yet my come. My hour hasn't yet come. So it's not just like, I don't want to do it or like stop bossing me around, mom. It's, there's a big reason here. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts about what that means? Many that go in different directions. (laughs) I mean, I guess, I guess I would understand this as like time or hour, like to go public in some way. Yeah. Because before this, you know, he has a couple of disciples, but it's really been kind of on the DL. Yeah. You know, and and this would be sort of happening in a in a bigger context. But that for me just opens up the question of is is the hesitation to go public at this time, if that's if that's really what it is, because there is some kind of like strategy and timeline that Jesus knows and is like actually it's too early or like my debut's not supposed to be at a wedding. <laughs> like yeah. you know, like that's not how yeah. this is supposed to unfold. Or I might be overreading this, but is is Jesus hesitant because he knows that once this starts, he's going to be in some danger? Like, is there some? I don't know. I I and may, I'm definitely importing this from the Synoptic Gospels because I, yeah. I don't think we've had any of it here. But like, 
what Jesus understands to be his own trajectory at yeah. this point. I mean, is it's a pretty brutal trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. So so I could see it being strategic or I could see it being some some hesitation because it's going to be really painful. Yeah. No, I think I, that's really lovely. And I think, I think all of that is probably right, that there's this big thing that's coming. And this does not seem to be the moment when that's ready to get started. And, you know, I don't know how you would think about whether Jesus is hesitant about undertaking his mission. But certainly that what he says here implies that he doesn't think it is it is the time yeah. yet. Yeah. Which makes it interesting then that in the next section, he's going to, he's going to go ahead and do he's it. He's going to do it. Yeah. So the, the, his, the time is being hastened by this request from his mother. And so it's like, it's almost like Jesus's ministry gets started in this incidental thing in which the, it does. the wine has run out at a, at a wedding. Yeah. Which seems like a non-event. Yeah. But it turns out to be a hugely important event. Yeah. The gospel writer John uses my hour or my time in the gospel oftentimes to refer to the events of the, the last week of Jesus' life, the crucifixion resurrection story. Mm. That's Jesus' hour. And that, that's the hour of sort of the glorification, which we'll see that language a little bit later. So I do think the use of that, my hour has not yet come, is meant to bridge our understanding. I don't know if we can bridge it forward. If you've never heard the gospel before, you can't bridge it forward, you know, but when you get to the resurrection story and the crucifixion story, you can bridge it backwards. But I I think in one, one way or another, John is trying to tip our, his hand that this wedding in Cana is connected intrinsically in one way or another to that story at, at the end. And I think your connection, the like, this makes it public, which puts, events in motion, which yeah. is, are going to be trouble for Jesus. I think that, I think that's right. I'm thinking now about the, like that this is happening on the third day and I don't know. Yeah. Now, now you've got me thinking about all the ways that this could be read sort of backwards after you, after yeah. you read the end of the story. Maybe yeah. I just need to, I haven't read the end of John. So maybe I need to hold on and see what's <laughs> yeah. actually in the end of John before, you know, reading the end of Luke into John or whatever. Yeah. But I know my my study Bible also said maybe this is sort of like a reminiscent in some way or suggestive of like the the Last Supper. Sure. Yeah. 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 So we've got wine. Yeah. Which obviously has resonances in a Christian context with the Last Supper. And we're also going to have bread showing up here in a couple chapters that we're going to talk about. And so... It is it it makes its own connections whether or not the right whether or not right there was probably wine and bread in many situations in the ancient exactly. world but <laughs> yes yeah. right right which you know is one of the things we've been talking about with John is oftentimes he's working on a very mundane level like yes. they ran out of wine they needed some wine and also he's working on this kind of other spiritual yeah. plane yep yep and so we need to be able to hold probably hold both of those together. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, Minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurick, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy, and that is a great joy. 
It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts, and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now, back to this week's podcast. Okay, so Jesus has some hesitation then about my hour has not yet come. His, his mother just says, do whatever he says. And then Jesus is going to move ahead with the thing. Yeah. Starting in verse six. Nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some from them and take it to the head waiter. And they did. The head waiter tasted the water that had become wine. He didn't know where it came from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the groom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely. You kept the good wine until now. Okay, we're going to stop there, even though that leaves just one verse sort of hanging out there at the end. But this is the sort of the, the conclusion of the narration, and then the next verse is going to give us some interpretation. Yeah. So John is very specific in a way that we have not seen yet in John about these six stone water jars that are for a Jewish cleansing ritual that each hold 20 or 30 gallons. Like that's a lot. (laughs) He lingers. It's a lot of information. Yeah. What do you, what do you take out of that description of those jars that seems important? I mean, so the ritual that I know that I would assume they're referring to is called Netilat Yadayim, which is just the washing of the hands that happens before a meal You pour water over each hand three times. You say a blessing. At least in the modern period, there's a tradition not to talk between the time that you say the blessing and the time that you bless the bread and eat. Mm. But it's not, but of course that might be, you know, sort of a later iteration. I don't, I don't know the history of that, but it's like, it's a pretty straightforward. So I guess the fact that these vessels were so big, I would draw from that like it doesn't take that much water to do this ritual so there must be a lot of people yeah they're not you they were not using these vessels themselves like to pour the water of their hands so i don't know if there was a spout like those you know gatorade coolers at soccer games (laughs) or probably that was technology that hadn't quite evolved yet but there must have been some way to you know get water smoothly from the container to use it in smaller portions yeah because you know you have to like pour it over your hands and since the jars were empty, presumably that had already happened. They had already yeah. done that ritual, and these are just empty containers. 
But that doesn't quite answer your question about why is there so much detail other than maybe just to say there were a lot of people at this wedding. No, I think that's important. Yeah, that there's, this is a big affair. I think that, I think that's important in itself. So we've got six uh, stone jars, 20 or 30 gallons each, you know, so we're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of water to wash ritual cleanse people's hands. Mm-hmm. I guess a lot of people, like I don't quite, that's a I don't lot quite of know how people, to do right? that. They're math. not bathing like, in this water, but yeah. yeah. So we yeah. imagine a huge crowd. And I think what you're saying, I mean, it's not entirely clear. So they're going to have to fill them in verse seven, which I think you interpreted that as they're empty, which I think is probably right. One could in theory read it as they're like, they've been partially used. Partially used. But yeah. That's not as interesting a story. <laughs> partially used water. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think that they, I think that they have been used in the ritual pr- preparation for the meal. And we, we assume that the meal has sort of happened. The other detail that's in there is that they're stone, which I think the first place that I would go with stone is, so they're not clay basically. Which yeah. I think is ideal for ritual jars in ancient Judaism because the stone is thought to not absorb impurities mm-hmm. in the way that clay does. And so you prefer to have a stone jar for ritual purposes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of an interesting detail that he specifies that. And then I don't know if we ought to do anything more with that. Do you, do you read anything there? I mean, I think, you know, what you're saying is is important that, for, for, you know, it's easier to keep something pure inside a stone vessel than a vessel made of something else. And maybe that it would be heavy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm kind of really reaching here, but like yeah. a stone vessel that holds that much. I don't know. That is true. Yeah. Heavy that is thing. a serious vessel. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So the miracle itself, somebody pointed out, which I think is important in the Bible Room Collaborative the other day that John doesn't actually use the word miracle very often. I, and I keep using it because it's, I mean, it's miraculous what is happening here. John yeah. likes the word sign, which we, can, yeah. which we can talk about a little bit later. Yeah. So if I use the word miracle, you can just transpose it in your head to sign. When I say miracle, I mean sign. <laughs> Whenever I say Paul, I meant Aristotle. What was that thing? That- I don't remember. I just remember. <laughs> uh John Hayes of blessed memory would say that. Yeah. Some professor that he knew that I think it was like whenever I sent out a note to his students or something that said in the last lecture, whenever I said Aristotle, I meant Paul or something. But I, I remember the line, but I don't, re- I don't remember what it was about. So anyway, okay. So the, the miracle that Jesus does here is so subtle. I mean, it's yes. not at all subtle, but it's also like really subtle. He tells them to fill the jars, and then so they fill the jars. And then he says, now take some to the waiter. And they mm-hmm. take it to the waiter, and it's wine. But we never, yeah. like, there was no, like, moment. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's very understated. Yeah. Do you, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think for me, this will tie into to, to a question I have about the last verse that we can get into more. But, like, this is... It, it, it's not, it's public, but it's not very public. Like it's, yeah. it's, it feels like it's like paying the Starbucks bill for the person behind you or whatever. Like yeah. who, 
who would know what actually happened? The steward doesn't think that there was yeah. anything miraculous happening. He thinks yeah. they saved the good wine for later. Did the bridegroom even know they had run out of wine? Yeah. Like, before, like I don't know. And the guests, I, I, I don't know. It seems like this is kind of like an under the table miracle, under the yeah. table sign. I mean, because the only people who are said to know is the servants who had drawn the water knew. Yeah. And yeah, but they're not really important in the sense, like in the social sense of this story. And what you're noticing is that the head waiter actually calls the groom over and says, wow, you're awesome. You saved the good wine for the end. And so it's actually the groom who seems to be getting the social credit. credit. Yeah. For this thing that Jesus has done. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when Jesus said, like, it's not it's not time yet, I can mm-hmm. see why this didn't seem like the ideal way to start. Maybe this is like a compromise position for him. Like, he'll be like, okay, how can I do what my mom is asking mm-hmm. without starting the timer to, you know, like, without really, really, really starting in a way that I don't want yeah. to. Yeah. I love that. And I, I mean, to me, there's something so important about this this miracle being done low key. So there is something really profoundly world changing that is happening in this story from the framework of John anyway. And nobody knows it. I just think that's so interesting. Like it reminds me a little bit of that conversation that we had about Samuel anointing David a few months yeah. ago. Yeah. There's this whole thing that's happening at this celebration. Yeah. But only a few people actually realize what what is going on. Yeah. Yeah. Seems similar here. Okay. I think you're going to tell me that John always works on two levels. So so the (laughs) answer to my question is yes, but I'll ask my my question anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So it says uh, everyone serves a good wine first, but you saved it until now. Yeah. When you read this, does it hit you as. We're not really just talking about wine here. Like mm. Jesus is the wine or, yeah, I don't know, something along those lines. Yeah, what I think is that John's always working on <laughs> two levels. Yeah. You think? He's <laughs> working on more than one level for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Not just two. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think he is working on the mundane level here, which is to say... It is the nature of this thing Jesus has done that it sort of violates social protocols in a positive way, right? Like it is hospitality exceeding hospitality. And he's not taking credit for it, which is, which is fascinating. But, let's, but leaving that aside, like it, it is not just that he's provided, but he has provided in a way that is luxurious, or something, mm-hmm. right? Like this is the most amazing thing is coming latest and in a way that's giving lots of honor to this person who is here. But yes, clearly <laughs> there is something else going on here with the with the wine. Like what a weird miracle, right? To be the, to be the first, you know, in I think in Mark's yeah. gospel, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand in a, in yeah. a synagogue or something is like one of his first narrative yeah. miracles. That makes sense. Here mm-hmm. it's Jesus produces some wine at a party. 
I think that very much invites us into the conversation about what on earth is this wine about? Yeah. Do you have, do you have thoughts about where we might start out thinking about wine? Well, I just want to say one thought that popped into my head while you were talking was that in some ways, like I know that we're, we're moving in this story, differentiating between the Jewish community and the budding Christian community. And Jesus does this sign in a really Jewish way. Like yeah. <laughs> the, the idea of, you know, giving or giving charitably without anyone knowing that yeah. you're the one who's done it is like peak Jewish teaching, you know? Yeah. And so. I love that. So I love the idea that whatever this sign is, is not just like this it's almost like the hiddenness of it is part of the sign. Like it's yeah. not like ostentatious yeah. publicity, you know, yeah. the way that we might think about it now. Like I'm going to introduce my generosity and my magical powers to the world. I probably shouldn't say magical powers. I'm going <laughs> to, no, I mean, I mean, but, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm going to introduce my powers in yeah. this way. Um, and that's really not what it's about. Yeah. I think that's so important and, and expressing the Jewishness of what is happening here. I think is, is exactly right. This story is sometimes read as like a replacement story, right? Mm -hmm. Where we had, we had the water of ritual purification, which gets replaced by the wine, which is Jesus or something, or the blood of Christ. Maybe sometimes people will say, but I, mm, I don't think that's what's happening here for a number of reasons. One of them, I love what you just said is like, there is, there's kind of a connection to the, Jewish ritual, the Jewish value system that Jesus is displaying here. Two is that the jars were empty. So it's not that it's not that the purification water was changed into wine. It's that the right. jars they already did the used, purification and the yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not that that yeah that didn't get discarded. Right? It, they did the one thing and then they did then they used it for something else. So at the very least, it's a something about something new is taking shape within the structures of the older thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I don't think, it, I think replacement is kind of a poor reading of this text. And then the third thing is that the Hebrew Bible is full of, and also intertestamental texts as, as we call them uh, in the Christian world, like the sort of Jewish texts like Enoch and others that come mm -hmm. post Hebrew Bible, but pre-New Testament. There is an, a, an association of wine, abundant wine with the, either with the day of the Lord say in Amos chapter nine, or with the opening up of the messianic age in Joel three and in other places in Jewish texts of a later period. And so the wine has significance, not mm. over and against the Jewish tradition, but act exactly within the Jewish tradition. Like here is abundant flowing wine. We even saw it in Isaiah 55 a little bit, wine and milk without price. I love that. And I, I feel like that really, um, that makes it a little, a little less weird that this is the first yeah. sign and also seems so, I don't know if I would say John like, but the fact that people don't even have to be able to recognize yeah. it as such, but we yeah. as readers can see like there is, these are crazy big vessels that are now full of wine. So we can, you know, maybe make, make the connections that you just need. Yeah. I, love I think, yeah, to me, it's a no brainer. Like that's what John is trying to get us to do is to say messianic age, like abundant flowing wine so much, like it's excessive amounts of wine. 
And that's characteristic of the Messianic age. And this is Jesus saying, hello, I'm the fulfillment of Messianic expectation. But he says it in a way that nobody notices. Yeah. Except yeah. the servants. And maybe maybe the disciples also notice. Somebody else gets credit for it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other way, so the other thing that is, gets said here is, like, the, the previous wine is viewed as second-rate and then the fine wine is what Jesus brings. Mm-hmm. I think it is also possible to do a supersessionist reading there where you say <laughs> Judaism was a second-rate religion. Now here comes Jesus. I, I also think that's a mistaken reading because in the Jewish tradition itself, there was a recognition that the Messianic age is going to be better than the present age, right? So it's not about the, this religion is better than that one, I think. I mean, it might end up being that about that we we'll have to see how you parse that. Like, can, anyway, can you say the Messianic age arrived in Jesus without saying <laughs> Jesus right. has superseded Judaism? That I, that's a real conversation. But this is not disparaging the Jewish practice before now, I think. It is saying it is the nature of the pre-Messianic age in which we all live that things are not the way that they should ultimately be. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everybody was expecting some better age to come in one form or another. And so to say this, this new thing that's happening is better than the old thing is not a displacement thing. It's a fulfillment thing, which maybe is a subtle difference, but I, but I think it's an important one. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It's a nice nuance. So that's the end of the narrative. And then John gives us sort of a little narratorial interpretation in verse 11. This was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So my attention, so when I consulted my inner Amy about this (laughs) verse, she said, glory that word is really important. <laughs> is that what actual Amy thinks? Uh, that's much better than what actual Amy thinks. <laughs> that's great. Keep talking to the inner Amy and see what see what she has to say about that. Oh, for oh, real? You want me to talk about it? Well, no. But I love the idea of leaning into the idea of glory here. You know, there's a, I know this is not in Hebrew, but but if we tried to map it onto the idea of, of glory within that the Hebrew Bible context, there's a there's a sense of like the the weightiness, the heaviness, the actual real real presence yeah. of God in a space, and it's you know surrounds God at Sinai and God in the tabernacle and God in the temple. So the idea, so I love that sort of connection here. That what's being revealed is is that like real real presence of God. That yeah is embodied in Jesus. I love that, Amy. And all of those examples of places where the glory of the Lord shows up in different ways in the Hebrew scriptures, I think is really important. That the place that I was, like I was remembering this conversation that you and I had back in whenever that was, the early part of this narrative lectionary year about the glory of the Lord. And it was in the manna story in Exodus 16. In the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. Do you remember that conversation? Sort of. <laughs> and there was something about, about Rashi it. saying, 
that it is the manna itself that is the glory of the Lord. Anyway, oh, mm-hmm. the connection that that was occurring to me, thanks to my inner Amy, was this wine story is like the manna story. Yeah. In which God's glory is being revealed, not in like the towering, you know, pillar of fire that goes ahead of the Israelites, which is also a manifestation of God's glory. Yeah. But it's being manifested in this little bit of manna that the Israelites responded by saying, like, what is that? Uh, So the glory of the Lord revealed in ways that provide for people in ways that they do not really appreciate or recognize. Right. Because it's nothing like crazy looking, you know, it's we're giving you a little bit of nourishment. We're having wine at a wedding. You know, it's yeah, Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, and in some ways, this is even like less obvious because then they were like in the desert and they needed food, and there's right. now there's food. Now they're just at a wedding and everybody seems to be kind of drunk, and mm-hmm. they're just gonna have more wine. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. this is not a like a moment of desperation. This is a moment of celebration, and, and 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 yet there's the glory of the Lord kind of subtly present there as well. Yeah, I love that. The miracle of sustenance. Miracle of sustenance, yeah. I mean, this is a little more than sustenance, but like the the miracle of like the every the everyday in some yeah. ways. The, I like the everyday, and I like the subtlety. The glory of the Lord is revealed in subtle ways, mm-hmm. uh, not mirac- mm-hmm. Not, I mean, it is miraculous, but it's not. But they don't see that part of it, right? And you know, it is every day, but it is also like we have just inaugurated the messianic age. I think, yeah but it's so subtle <laughs> that nobody knows the glory of the Lord is so subtle that nobody notices it. I think is really kind of an interesting idea. I love that so much because when, when I read this sentence, I was like, I was surprised that it was called a sign because I was like a sign to who, because nobody saw it. I yeah. mean, not nobody saw it, but very few people like this just seemed like a weird thing to do as a first sign. Yeah. But I, but now I love it because because of what you said, like the idea that this is intentionally quieter, yeah. you know, and then it does have a real impact on sort of the fabric of creation, you know, in the way you're saying, like it can be inaugurating the messianic age, whether or not people recognize it as, as such in this moment. Yeah. But yeah, and I love that connection to the mana story. So it seems to be the people who actually understand what has happened in this text mm-hmm. were the servants who drew the water. Yeah. And then this very last line, we get his disciples believed in him, which I think leads you to understand that the disciples also understood what happened. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So now we've got a little group of people within this bigger group who do know what's going on, which I think creates this kind of interesting insider-outsider motif Mm -hmm. that we've also seen, like the light came to the world and the world did not comprehend it or Mm -hmm. understand it or or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So the kingdom of heaven is sort of unfolding. The messianic age is unfolding in, the, in this way that only a few people are paying enough attention. Do you think there's, so the disciples already recognized something in Jesus, like something really profound. Yeah. You know, to varying degrees. And so when it says they believed in him, do you feel like anything has changed? Like, I don't think it's used that particular turn of phrase before. Mm, yeah. But the general idea that they believed in him sort of seemed 
implicit in the text before? Do you think anything has changed for the disciples or is it just like further affirmation or maybe more information? I don't know. How do you read that? Yeah, we had a conversation. I can't remember if it was last week or the week before about the repetition of come and see. And then the question was like, well, what did they see? Yeah. But they clearly saw something. Yeah. So the kind of the way that I've been reading this is this is the thing. This is the real come and see, right? Mm -hmm. So up until now, maybe they've seen enough to keep them around. But now they have seen this thing. I see. And that sort of cements it. Like, oh, there it is. We have, yep. we have expected, we have hoped, we've anticipated. Now we got it. Mm-hmm. I think there are probably other ways of reading that, though. Where, where do you go? I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's just a, a more uh, like sophisticated spin on, on my general sense that this is, it's affirming of what they, what they suspected or what they thought they knew. But I really like the idea that what they were seeing was enough to keep them following. Uh-huh. You know, and I mean, Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. So he he had a pretty big, you know, <laughs> That's true. That he, he suspected point. a lot. But yeah, that but having this point. this actual sign performed. Does seem like it would shift things. You know, the other place that you could go with it, going back to our conversation from the fall as well, is it seems to me like belief is often iterative. Yes. So God is yes. like, hey, I'm going to set you free from Egypt so that you will know that I am the Lord. And I'm like, yep. okay, got it. And then. Yeah, I'll remember that for five minutes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, okay, here's some manna so that you will know that I am the Lord. Yeah. I'm going to set you free from Babylon so that yeah. you will know that I am the Lord. There's this like. It's a pro- well, it's a- and, and yet I know that you and I have talked about the idea that belief is not something like you arrive and there you are. You yeah. finally made it and you're going to stay in that state yeah. forever. Like, unfortunately, we're not like we most humans move in and out of you know, moments where they feel clarity in their belief. And yeah, and so this could could sort of be acknowledging that too. I love that. Well, so in that light, when you think about this text and its connections to contemporary life, where, where are you seeing important things to pull out? Okay, so I feel almost like I, I could also argue against what I'm about to say, but I, I won't. I'll let <laughs> you it. argue against yeah. it later. Okay. But I'm really drawn to our initial question of why, why this is, why start here? And uh, Jesus saying like, this is not where we start. And, but, but will it, but doing it anyway? Yeah. And I'm drawn to it you know, sort of in my own life in the world as, you know, sometimes it's hard to to start the really big things, <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, and you feel like you have to, ha- you have to have the perfect sign to start with and you can't, you know, I don't know, like everything is supposed to line up just right and, and everything has to happen on a certain schedule. And I see in here, like, because Jesus specifically says it's not time, but then does it anyway. I don't know, this sort of affirmation that like, there are actually a lot of right paths. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's okay to just take the one that's in front of you and not feel like you have to wait until this, everything is perfectly aligned and, you know, all of that. Like, I feel like this is a, 
this is a little like, you know, gentle push on my back to, yeah. you know, like just, just why don't, why don't we just start here? Because here's where we are. Yeah. Even though maybe it wasn't what you had had in mind. <laughs> yeah, no, I, so, love I don't know. That, I don't think that that doesn't feel like very spiritually profound, but it feels very like in my lived existence in the world, like a really relevant little gentle shove. <laughs> I love that, Amy. And I mean, I really do think there's something in this text that's important about that, that I mean, Jesus says it's not yet my time, which certainly implies that he had a sense of like how this thing was supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And he's now he's sort of extemporaneously just shifted the plan. Like let's improvise here. And he's doing it in response to his mother or in response to this social situation. And he's just like, yeah, let's just move on and make this thing happen. Even though this is not the way it was supposed to go. I, like both the, both the notion that you and I could also live that way. And also the notion, like, this is the way the kingdom of heaven, like the, the messianic yeah. age is introduced into the world is this like, Oh yeah, mom. Okay. Like, I mean, woman, uh, <laughs> I'll go do this thing, even though I'm going to tell you I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go do right. it. Right. Right. I'll sort of like be somewhat begrudgingly be like, fine. Yeah. Yeah. But I think my, nice. my take on it is uh, related, I think. Thinking about the glory of the Lord and the messianic age and the profundity of what is happening in this text, but it's happening in such kind of improvised, subtle yeah. And ignored, overlooked ways. Yeah. I just think it's so amazing. And, you know, the here the unfolding of the kingdom of heaven is about hospitality, social grace. You know, yeah. it's about like kingdom of heaven, make sure that the bridegroom is not going to be embarrassed on his wedding day. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's going to yeah. make sure that people are provided for, not in ways that like are going to help them survive the wilderness in this case, but in ways they're going to help them like celebrate love and life. Yeah. Even better. Like, there's just so much in there about what the arrival of the Messianic age looks like and that it, it can look like a celebration. It does look like a celebration. It, it can be improvised. It does unfold in ways that are pretty subtle. And so, you know, we, we some of us spend a lot of time kind of looking up toward the heavens, waiting for Jesus to return on a cloud, you know, mm-hmm. and to think like maybe the kingdom of heaven, maybe the Messianic age like unfolds in front of us sort of all the time in ways that are subtle in ways that are improvised in ways that are building community in ways that are celebrating life and and in in ways that aren't even fully articulated like i love that detail in this text that the miracle is like here's the water now they scoop it out and it's wine but you never saw the transformation right like sometimes you just see the results of the transformation without actually seeing that the transformation is is taking place Yeah. yeah so i think that invites me as a Christian reader of this text into this kind of anticipation that maybe the kingdom of heaven is actually kind of all around. And the task is to, to look for it in the subtle places and participate it, participate in it in these kind of improvised ways and not be waiting for some kind of earth shattering transformation. Yeah. Which, I mean, which might happen or, or not. I don't know. Right. Right. There are some pretty earth shattering things that will happen over the course of this story. But but yeah, it is really nice that I love that. I really love that. That. Yeah. We need to pay better attention. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Pay attention. 
Yeah. Well, Amy, next week we are in a super complicated story of Jesus Great. going to Jerusalem and overturning the money changers in the temple, which interestingly uh, occurs at the very end of the synoptic gospel. So we talked about it, mm-hmm. Luke's version of it last year. Mm-hmm. In John's gospel, it occurs right after his first sign. Now he's going to go to the temple and cause some trouble. So Very interesting. I think this is, I don't know if it's the one from John, but this story, the way it occurs sort of in, in other, in the gospels in general, was the topic of a very long TikTok tweet? Oh, yeah. Know, something that something like that last year. About, yeah, yeah, that one of our listeners sent to us about whether this is a, how to, how to read this sort of in that from a Jewish perspective. So, yeah. So I'll try to give that some thought. I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. All right, Amy, I'll see you next week. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Jesus' clearing of the temple in John 2, 13-25. Until then, keep on digging.